For just as a body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make not that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we are all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've been studying the church in recent weeks. Welcome if you're new to the valley or new to Rockfish, by the way. We typically go through books of the Bible and hear what God said to us there. But as I said recently, we've been discussing what the church is, and we've done so under three main questions, which are what is a Christian, what is the church, and how does the church function? These questions kind of bleed together so that you can't answer one without answering the other. Uh, A quick sidebar here, there's a a book in the back by Mark Dever called What is a Healthy Church? And it's available to you for free. Pick it up, read it, give you a sense of uh, where we're going as a church and, and in this short series. So two weeks ago, we asked the question, what is a Christian? And we answered concisely that a Christian is one who has God as father and lives as a member of his household. Additionally, we pointed out that while every Christian, everywhere is included in God's family, that's the universal church or what we call the big C church, a Christian's inclusion in God's family is expressed by their participation in the local church. We said little C church to try and remember that. We also noted that these are not two separate churches, one universal and one local, but rather two aspects of the one true church church. Furthermore, we observe that the communal nature of Christianity is inescapable and learn that the Bible teaches us about what Christianity is primarily through corporate images and metaphors. And we considered Paul's images as he gave description to Christians as citizens, siblings, and stones in Ephesians 2. And he used those images to demonstrate to us what happens when we follow Jesus which is Jesus makes us a new creation by uniting us to himself and to other Christians so that we might make God known 
through our fellowship with one another as his church. So in light of the three questions, we said a Christian is a person that has God as father and lives as a member of his household, and that God's household or his family is his church. And so our inclusion in the family of God is evidenced by our participation in that family, which is the local church. We participate in God's church by making God known through our love for one another in the faithful proclamation of and obedience to His Word. Then last week, Rich helped us to understand that God's plan for the Christian life is to be lived out in community with other Christians. He reminded us of how Jesus redefined family in Mark 3. If you remember Jesus' mother and his brothers, they're outside of a house where Jesus is teaching and someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And instead of following his contemporary social protocol, wherein Jesus would have been required to kind of drop everything and go out to his mother and brothers to whom he owed his primary allegiance, instead of following that cultural more, Jesus establishes a new criteria for the Christian's primary allegiance. He says, who are my mother and brothers? But those that do the will of the Father, those that have faith and follow me. See, he established a new order of priorities based on faith in him rather than on bloodlines. So that the the true disciples' priority list, if you remember, read something more like this. Number one, God and his church, that's his people. Then my biological family and and then my uh, job and on down the line, however you have it organized. We skipped a a rock across the top of the pond of the Christian life as portrayed by the New Testament and learned that spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community and that long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. We learned that Christians who commit to loving one another in the context of the local church are being obedient to God's command to make their love for Jesus visible and are growing to be more like him. And that brings us to today where we're going to pick up this same thread of thought, only we're going to ask a a different question primarily, which is this, why belong to a church? Why belong to a church? We want to keep those other three questions. What is a Christian? What is a church? And how does the church function kind of as a background process? We don't want to dismiss them. But this morning, we're primarily considering why belong to a local church. If you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. My goal this morning is to impress upon you what I believe the main idea of this text is which is that union with Jesus requires union with his body. Union with Jesus requires union with others. And the application of that main idea of the text, which is our our one big thing or that one application I would like you to take hold of and, and put on throughout the week, if you will, which is to care for one another. We're going to examine this text in three parts. We're going to talk about the body, two threats to the body, and how the body stays healthy. The body, two threats to the body, and how the body stays healthy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it's gray outside this morning. It's raining. A little bit chilly. We pray that though it is damp outside, that it would be warm in here. 
that the overcast weather would not make us overcast and blah in our hearts. We ask that you would shine your light on us. That you would cover us in the fog of your Holy Spirit this morning. That you would help us to hear and experience your voice in the gospel proclaimed. Father, teach us, change us, forge us into your likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. Paul's metaphor here for the church is a little bit surprising. We, we expect him to say something along the lines of, just as the body is one and has many members, so it is with the church. But instead we get, just as the body is one and has many members, so also with Christ. What's, what's happening here? I think, I think simply, Paul is pointing out to us that the church and Christ are one. The church is the body of Christ. And so consequently, to be united with Christ is to be united to others who are also united with Him. Verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He uses the word one a lot there to demonstrate that we are to be as one people. Whatever differences we have, social status, racial, ethnic background, whatever it is, those differences are erased in Christ Jesus. Remember last week we said we wanted to be a red people that are saved by the blood of Christ. And that's where our commonality comes, being part of his family. Remember in Ephesians 2.14, we read, For Jesus Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This means that whatever divides us does so no longer. It means that the athlete and the nerd, they hang out. It means the CEO and the fast food worker, they're buddies. It means that there is community between the black person and the white person and every color person in between on the spectrum. Jesus brings us into unity with one another. The gospel creates real unity with diversity. The love and community that is embodied in the church is to look like Christ. In other words, when when people look at the church, they should see what Jesus is like. What that means is, if someone asks you what Jesus is like, you can answer them, Come to church with me and find out. You you can say, if you want to know what Jesus is like, come to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church and you'll get a sense of it. This, This shows us how highly Jesus regards his church. He has made her, he's made us his representative. Maybe that makes you squirm a little bit. You go, man, I know plenty of churches and most of them are full of fools. 
people that say things that I would never agree with. Silly things. People that don't always do what they say. Filled with people that are just plain weird. People I wouldn't want to associate myself with. Here's the amazing thing, though. These are the people Jesus has chosen to represent him. Where the gospel is preached and believed and obeyed, where Jesus has followed, you have the true church, and that's who Jesus has chosen to represent him. Let me say this. If Jesus is okay with these foolish, weird, hypocritical people being associated with him, shouldn't you be? If Jesus is committed to his church, even though she's imperfect, shouldn't we be? See, to divorce yourself from the bride of Christ because she has some warts that have yet to be removed is to divorce yourself from Christ. If you refuse to love the church, John tells us, he tells you and me that we do not know God. This is what he, he writes. Chapter 4, verse 20 through 5, 1. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We reveal our love for God by our participation in the church, which is where that's the context God has given us to love one another. Union with Jesus requires union with others. John writes again in chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and this one's fascinating. He says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Did did you catch that? If we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with Jesus. No, 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 that's that's not what the writer says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And his blood cleanses us from all sin. Your relationship with God is not just about you. It requires relationship with others. The point is this. Jesus loves His church. And she is the means by which He has chosen to make the light of Himself known in a dark world. As members of the body of Christ, Christians are to be daytime people in a nighttime world. We are, by our fellowship with one another, to display the glory of God as we love one another and identify with one another and are committed to one another as a family. The church shows what Jesus is like. Some churches are are healthier than others, but that doesn't matter. They're still giving us a picture of what Jesus is like. The sense of His majesty. But sin still lurks, and we are yet to be perfected. And so there is a sense in which evil is always crouching in the brush, waiting to tear our fellowship to pieces. 
waiting to devour us, waiting to distort this picture that the church is supposed to paint. And so Paul points out two threats to the body. First one comes in verses 15 and 16. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. The first threat to unity, first threat to health that Paul identifies here, I have designated a lust for glory. Let me explain a little bit. The people pictured in the body metaphor as those that that are um, feet or ears. But what happens is they feel like outsiders. They feel inferior or insignificant. As a result of that insignificant feeling, they conclude that they do not belong to the church. See, the person that's struggling like the foot or the ear feels insignificant because they're not functioning in a different role. They look around at everybody else and think something along the lines of, if only I led music or was a greeter or preached, then, then I would belong. Then I would have significance in the body. And Paul says, that's dumb. He says, just because you're a foot and wish you were a hand doesn't mean that you don't belong to the body or that you're unimportant identified this threat as lust for glory because at its root is a desire to be in someone else's shoes. It idolizes the gifts and the position of somebody else and results in discontentment with one's own gifts, with one's own position, with one's own calling. Let's look at the second threat in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. See, the, th- the second threat here to unity and health, Paul says, and, and I've called it, a theft of glory. This picture, the body metaphor here, are those that think they're just too cool for school. They're really, really awesome. And man, this church and God, he's really lucky they're on his team. The church is really lucky to have them. You know, they're so great, in fact, I don't, I don't we don't, they think something along. I don't need any of these losers. I've got it together. Those pictured in the body metaphor here are those that are struggling with feeling superior and self-sufficient. I mean, this person thinks that they don't need anyone else. After all, they've got their Bible, study on their own. They don't need the church. Paul says to this too, that's dumb. It's wrong thinking. Just because you're an eye and you can't see why you would need a hand doesn't mean that you don't need the hand. Identify this as the theft of glory because at its root is the desire to be self-sufficient, which can only rightly be said of God. This person struggles with sin and arrogantly sets themselves up as their own God, celebrates themselves rather than humbling themselves and serving others. They're denying the church the fellowship that they owe to her. They are refusing to play their part. In Corinthians, the, the key issue was that people that was leading people into one of these feelings of superiority or inferiority was whether or not you had a, a particular spiritual gift or not. 
Those who didn't thought they weren't necessary to the body, and those who did have the gifts thought that they were the be-all, end-all of the body. They didn't need others. I think today we still struggle with feelings of inferiority or superiority. We struggle with lusting for the glory that belongs to Jesus, lusting for other gifts, or we struggle with stealing the glory that belongs to Jesus that we think somebody else has because of their gifts. Sometimes we struggle with both, go back and forth. Our desire for the glory that only belongs to God sickens the body. See, when we seek our own glory and our own good primarily instead of God's glory, we divide the body of Christ. Which is why Paul gives us a solution, a way to keep the body healthy. He gives us two ways to neutralize these threats. They are having the mind of Christ and having the same care for one another. We find the first in verses 17 through 20. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Logic here is pretty simple to follow. If there are not different body parts with different functions, then you cannot have the body. Further, you can't have life. Never forget when I was pretty young, no idea how old I actually was, uh, my father was preparing dinner, which didn't happen all that often. Uh, and I think he was making ham or, or something to that effect. And I remember sitting on the kitchen floor and the lighting wasn't great in our house. It was kind of orangish, if you can think of it that way. You could smell the, the ham. It smelled good, all right. And he's sitting there and he's slicing the, the ham. And he has one of those, it's not a serrated edge blade. It's one of the ones with a softer edge that just, you know, it's, you're not supposed to use to cut ham and the like. You're supposed to use serrated blade. Uh, and my mom says, hey, be careful. Don't, don't use that. You might not want to use that knife. Use a different one. He's like, yeah, I've, I've got it. I'm already started. And so he, he keeps cutting, keeps cutting. And all of a sudden, whoosh, hear it slip. Said a word I'm not going to repeat. But his finger, a portion of it, top portion, cut clean off. So what my, what my mom did, she got a bag of ice. She put that finger on ice. We went to the hospital and they put it back on. Crazily enough, it's almost like the incident never happened. If you, if you look at my dad's hands today, they reattached that puppy. And once it was reattached to his body, it got vitality back. It got functionality back. You see, likewise, the person that is severed from the local church and claims Jesus, they are on ice. Not going to have vitality or functionality until they're reunited to the body. A Christian separated from the body of Christ is dying and rotting. Spiritual life apart from the body of Christ is grotesque and unsustainable. If you are calling yourself a Christian and you do not belong to a church, you've divorced yourself from the context in which God has called you to love others. And I am worried for your soul. Part of how we make sure that we really love God, that we really know Him, is by being obedient to being in community with one another. And when we aren't doing that, well, disobedience is the path to hell. When we are severed from the body, we are a severed finger on ice. 
really quick way to get out of God's will for your life, I mean, if you wanted to do that, is to stop attending the gathering of the church. Really quick way to make yourself spiritually unhealthy and to call and to question your Christianity is to cut off meaningful relationships in the church. Uh, Larry Trotter's message on this passage brought to my attention that I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. I mean, after all, you all are here. But if you're like me, to your shame, there have been seasons in your life where you were the finger on ice. Didn't go to church or you did and you weren't committed in a real way. But God, in his kindness to you, put someone or a number of someones in your life so that eventually you found yourself reattached. I'm willing to bet most of, if not all of us, know someone who says they are a Christian but doesn't belong to a church. You can probably think of somebody right now. Go ahead and do that. Friends, this is a dangerous and deadly place for anyone to be. As the body of Christ, would you lovingly and clearly confront this sin in their life? Challenge them to belong. Perhaps in addition to praying for them and with them, you could offer to read through parts of the New Testament. Love them by finding them and returning them to the flock. We are all stupid sheep and we all wander. We need each other. This is what Christ has called us to. Paul has more to say about the body and how it can function healthily in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God in his perfect wisdom, God has chosen to put you right here where you are. God has carefully planned for you to be a member of the church that you are a part of. Isn't that amazing? This means that God and His providence determined that the best possible way for you to grow in Christ-likeness was for you to live in community with the people in the church to which you belong. Think about that the next time somebody gets on your nerves. They're God's gift to you. It's for your good. Say, man, I really don't like Susie. Susie is God's miracle grow to you. Everyone is arranged according to God's design for their good and for His glory. If you're like me, maybe the body metaphor doesn't do it for you. So I'm going to offer you a paraphrase that I heard once. I'm going to butcher it, but that's okay. Uh, There is one football team. The team consists of many members, all of which play an important role in the team's success. If the punter should say to the receiver, since I am not a receiver, I do not belong to the team, he would be wrong. Nor could the quarterback say to the lineman, I have no need of you. For if all were the quarterback, where would the blocking be? If all were receivers, where would the kicking come from? team is made up according to the coach's plan. 
and for everyone's success. There are many members to the team. Only one team. See, God's put us this way on purpose. The kickers among us are indispensable and worthy of God's God's honor and of great honor among us. Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. It probably means here what we would consider our private parts. Uh, I also had one commentator say the internal organs, those parts that we can't see, they're clothed with modesty, but are essential to the body's functioning. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Just like the field goal kicker on a football team sometimes feels inferior, truth is he's indispensable, right? A lot of games come down to whether or not he's going to make a field goal. Maybe you feel like a field goal kicker here. Internal organ. No one sees that secret service that you do. The truth is you're worthy of double honor. You're an integral part of what goes on here. As members of our church that do the thankless and unseen work of the ministry need to be thanked. Think of those that show hospitality to visitors and other members by hosting meals. Or the person who prays through the membership list with regularity. Think of those that minister to the homebound. Of those that make sure graves are marked in the cemetery. Those that make sure the grass is cut. The people that call to see how you're doing. Think of Hilda who plays the piano every week. When was the last time you told her thank you? And I also can't help but catch a a scent of Jesus' words here. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the solution for feelings of inferiority and a lust for glory is to have the mind of Christ. In the economy of God, those that seem weak are strong. Those that seem least are greatest. Those that submit to His will are content and happy. Those that have the mind of Christ are those that listen to Paul's instruction in Philippians 2 and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than themselves. Look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we have the mind of Christ, we do not lust for glory, but delight in living out the life that He has assigned to us with our own unique gifts and personalities in order to bring Him glory. Having the mind of Christ neutralizes feelings of inferiority and feelings of superiority by making the interest of others and the glory of God our passion. Have the mind of Christ when we stop thinking wrongly and start seeing clearly 
understand that God knows better than we do how to arrange his body. I mean, how foolish is it to deny your place in the church? One author writes this, To deny your place in the body or to act independently of other members is to say that God does not know what he's doing. Remember, Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected to save sinners and to make them a part of his body. The Spirit gives new birth and faith and baptizes each member into the body. The Father chooses before the foundation of the world all the parts of the body and arranges them as he pleases. Now, if we conclude, I don't matter, I don't need other members, we in effect say, God blew it, messed up, doesn't know what he's doing. He put me here, but I don't belong. He placed me around these worthless folks, but I don't need them. We're saying God can't build his church. Perhaps we say to ourselves, I'm just a a lowly toenail gathering fungus. No one wants to be around me. Not worth anything. Both of these attitudes exhibit hubris and reveal a lack of contentment with what God has made us to be. These attitudes slander and blaspheme God. And until we root out these attitudes from our hearts completely, we will be waging a quiet war against Jesus' body. Friends, let us have the mind of Christ and joyfully submit to the life that he has called us to, ministering to one another. Verse 25, Paul writes about a second way to neutralize these threats to division. And I think it's tightly tied to the first. It's caring for one another. But but read with me. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We neutralize the threat of division when we have the mind of Christ and care for one another. The unity of the church is unbreakable when her people have this Philippians 2 DNA. When we all listen and heed Paul's words to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having the mind of Christ, which is yours. Verse 25 is really interesting. Notice Paul doesn't say that we make sure there is no division by being unified, but instead he writes that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul says the way you make sure there isn't division among you is by caring fully for each and every member. See, the key to unity in the body of Christ is each and every member having fully the same concern, care, and love for every other member. One author writes... It's as though God says, so you want to destroy cliques and petty group squabbles? Do you want to end ethnic and cultural prejudice and hatred? Do you desire to tear down class divisions? How about growing in holiness and joy? Do you want to be sure no one is left out lonely and ignored? 
Do you want to ensure everyone has their needs met? Well, the way you do that is to show equal concern for one another. Don't let your love and compassion and hopes for others be limited to some subsection or small group of the whole. Don't let your love be partial or preferential. Let each member show concern for every other member. Equal concern for each other member. Makes sense. Makes sense that this should be the opposite of division, doesn't it? When you think about it, what is division except the act of leaving someone out? Division is the act of missing someone, of not including them. God's vision for His church means that no one is left out. Caring fully, equally for one another will kill division. But I must confess, it was really hard for me this week. Because Judy Brown brought me some crispy cream donuts. And so she's been my favorite all week, just so y'all know, full disclosure. Delicious. Also, it's funny, it also made my wife my least favorite person because she ate more of them than I did. And the nerve to take the last one. Caring for one another is hard. But we're all called to do it. Notice Paul says every member should have the same care for one another. This means that member care is everyone's responsibility. Check it out. When somebody is sick in the hospital, it's your responsibility to visit them. Not mine. And yes, I I make hospital visits. Plenty of them, but to be honest, I, I lack gifts of mercy many of you have. Oftentimes when I show up in the hospital, I think the people that see me are like, this is not who I want to see right now. Not very compassionate. I, wait, if I, especially, he's carrying his Bible, things must be really bad. I'm not, I'm not omni-gifted. In fact, passable preaching and teaching is just about all I've got. Church, you need more than just me or any other pastor elder. You need each and every member. You need everybody's gifts, not just mine. The primary care of the church's membership is the membership's responsibility. You're responsible for taking care of one another. I'm I'm part of that too. But my primary task is to equip you to care for one another for the work of the ministry. That's according to Ephesians 4.12. Caring for one another means being a people that share sorrows and joys need to be unified in such a way that when one part hurts, we all part hurt. I mean, if you accidentally smash your finger with a hammer, your whole body reacts, right? It hurts. Or if you're getting a nice shoulder massage, the whole body enjoys it. It's good. Likewise, we need to bear one another's burdens and share one another's joys. Who do you need to take out to dinner to celebrate and share in their joy of something good that's happened in their life? Who might you need to call and pray with because things aren't going so well? Who do you need to visit? Who might be cheered up or comforted just by having a cup of coffee with you? How can you care for one another? I'm going to share a story with you off the cuff a little bit here, which usually gets me in trouble. Uh, 
But I, I heard a story recently of, uh, of two women. Josephine, I'm changing the names. Josephine, who was somewhere between 90 and 100, nobody really knew how old she was, not even her. And Abby, who was a 20-something. They were together in the same church, and Abby became aware that Josephine, not having a car, still walked everywhere. And she loved to visit her, her good friend, who was really about only 100 yards from her house. But there was a big creek between their houses that she couldn't pass through without going all the way around. She had to go three or four miles out of her way to go all the way around this creek to see her friend. And so Abby thought to herself, I know a great way I can care for my friend Josephine. We're going gonna, gonna, gonna to build a bridge across this creek. So she got members of the church together. They got all the wood planks they need. She carried some of them herself. And in one day, they built this, this shortcut to Josephine's friend's house. So excited she went to Josephine's home and they were having a normal visit. And uh, Josephine was content to, to rock and, and just read her, her book and, and tell stories and, and just relax. But Abby, she was just all kinds of excitement going on. Can't wait to see how excited Josephine is when she sees the shortcut. So finally she coaxes her out of the house and they're walking and she says, Do you see that? You see there's a bridge there. Now you can have a shortcut. You can go visit your friend with more ease and comfort. It'll be great. But Josephine wasn't jumping for joy as she had expected. She said, child, I don't need a shortcut. You understand that when I walk around the creek, I also see four and five other people. I help them with their potted plants, exchange information, pray with some of them. If I take that shortcut, if I take that bridge all these other relationships will die. Here's the point of the illustration. You can't take shortcuts in the Christian life. If you do, you will cut yourself off from meaningful relationships. The shortcut Christian life looks like, I come to church on Sunday, hang out for you know, an hour or so, and then see y'all next week. There will be no prayer in my life. There will be no community. There will be no commitment. In and out. Can't take shortcuts. That's the wisdom. Care for one another. Bear one another's burdens. So let's answer our question. Why belong to a church? Why be a church member? Simply, it's God's will for you. We commit ourselves to caring for one another because the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to our Christian lives. I mean, did you even know the word members is a fundamentally Christian word? Membership is its uniquely Christian idea rooted in this metaphor of the body and the truth that Jesus has a body and Christians are members of it. We become church members because we have trusted in Christ and have been joined to Him and His body spiritually. As a result of our union with Jesus, we make our love for Him visible by loving and belonging to His people. Brothers and sisters, the local church is a biblical idea and it is an implicit requirement of the Christian life. Are you in obedience to this requirement? Or are you a finger on ice? 
I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't want to enjoy this gift of God by being joined to his people, by caring for others and being cared for. I can't understand why you wouldn't want this. It doesn't make sense to me why you would say or how you could be consistent and say, yes, I want Jesus, but I don't want his body. Exhort you this morning. If you're a Christian, you're not part of a local church. Repent of this sin. Submit to God and submit to his church. Non-Christian, if you're here, my hope is that you would see the beauty of repentance and forgiveness among this fellowship. Pray that your observation of our care for one another would point you to Jesus who cared about you enough to live the life you should have lived and die the death that you deserve to die. Sort you to turn from your sin. Follow him and be joined to his body. Friends, Jesus died alone on the cross, having his body splintered by thorns, torn by lashing, pierced by nails, and impaled by a spear, so that his body, the church, could live in glorious fellowship with one another and with God. He was torn apart so that we could be together. Jesus died alone so that we could do life together with him forever. Do you belong to Jesus and his people? Will you make your love for God real by committing yourself to his beloved, a local church? Your union with Jesus requires your union with his body and will compel you to think with his mind and care with his heart. Let us be the church. Let us care for one another. Let us commit to one another. Let us worship our King together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great grace and privilege of being called your people, of being adopted into your family as sons and daughters who get to inherit all the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. Father, pour out your Spirit on us. Cultivate a culture of love, a gospel culture in our midst culture that calls us out of ourselves and into you and into life together. Father, the call to discipleship is a call to die daily to ourselves and to remember that we are part of your body, that we are citizens in your kingdom, that we are one another's siblings, that we are being built as living stones into your holy temple, that we might display your glory to one another and to the nations. Father, our call is to love you by loving one another and to make your name known. Father, let everything that has breath praise you. Let us together give you the glory that only you are worthy of. Father, let us do this as we commit ourselves to being part of your body. Amen.